pray. Father, may our glory and honor come to you through Jesus. Father, we thank you as we come here this evening. We don't come here just in our own name or in the name of a Bible college or even a name of a church, but we come here in the name of Jesus. And because of that, Lord, we'd ask that you would speak to us. And as you speak to us, Lord, that you'll help us to recognize that all that you do and all that we do through your power brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for speaking to us this evening. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm afraid I have to begin this sermon this evening by offering you an apology. So will you all be ready to forgive me? Well, I suppose I should tell you what I've done wrong first, right? It always... Of course, it's sometimes safer when you just get the you know, acceptance of the apology first, because that way I've already got you there. But here's the problem I have. When I preach in chapel, in front of a group of students who are studying and preparing themselves for, for service within the kingdom of God, I never know what to do. You see, one option is for me to select a passage of Scripture and then to expound to you several points or lessons that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. This is the kind of sermons that we usually hear on a Sunday morning. A second option is to find a passage of Scripture that has captivated my attention and interest and to ask you to join me in an exploration of the possible meaning and significance of this passage. Now, with the first option, I just tell you what I want you to hear within the passage. And I count out the various lessons, usually three, right, um, that I want to bring to your attention. And for many pastors, of course, they seem to think that they get extra credit from their credit, from their congregation, if they can make those three points rhyme in some way, or maybe even start with the same letter of the alphabet. Um, that never works with me, because as you all know, I don't give extra credit. So, um, not even in church on Sunday morning. So, With the second option, I would try to invite you to join me in the exploration of a passage. And together we explore the possible meanings that a text can contain, and we try to conclude together how we can best understand the passage. Of course, there are a couple of drawbacks to this second option. One drawback is the fact that there are usually not just three points that we can hang the sermon up on. But the biggest drawback is the fact that the second option makes it necessary for you to think. And so this is where my apology comes in. I'm afraid I'm going to ask you to think in the midst of this sermon, and I'm terribly sorry for the inconvenience. <laughs> There's a passage of Scripture that has captured my attention over the past several years. Have you ever had a Scripture text grab your attention and simply not let you go? Well, this is my experience with a passage of Scripture from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 2, and... You will need your Bible, so don't put it away when we're done. But I want to read for you and with you Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read from the Lord's Word. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Paul writes, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners 
Know that a man and a woman are not, is not justified by observing the law, but they are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does this mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I would ask, Lord, that in this moment, that you would allow your spirit to speak in this place. That, Lord, you would not allow there to be any obstacles besides your word and your spirit and our mind and our hearts. Lord, I thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. And so would you allow the Holy Spirit to do his work? as we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work within our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. While I find this entire passage very engaging, I'm especially drawn to Paul's words in verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we read through these verses in Galatians chapter 2, then it becomes very evident that Paul is talking about justification by faith. The overriding point that Paul is making in these verses is that justification or righteousness, it's the same word in the Greek, but justification or righteousness cannot be gained through obedience to the law. Rather, justification is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Of course, when we realize that some of the Galatians were thinking of giving up their Christian faith in order to revert back to the law-oriented structure of Judaism, it should not surprise us that Paul would make such a big deal about this point and about this matter. And so in the last verse of our passage, verse 21, Paul hammers home his point that justification or righteousness is by faith in Christ alone and not by obedience to the law. Paul says, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so Paul's focus in the text is decidedly upon justification by faith. But there's a passage here in these verses which is very surprising. When you read through these verses, Paul's logic and point of reasoning, reasoning seem to be carrying us in one direction. And just when you think that you know what Paul's going to say, then Paul unexpectedly and almost illogically turns our attention in a different direction. Let me show you what I mean. We have already established that Paul's point in this passage has everything to do with justification or righteousness. Just look at all the places in this passage where he talks about justification. 
If you have your Bible, open this passage. You will find a specific reference to justification or being justified no fewer than six times in these seven verses. And so he's talking about being justified by faith. Now look at verse 20. In the first part of verse 20, Paul talks about how Christ lived in the life of the believer. Paul uses the first person personal pronouns. That means I and me, for those of you who are still in English 1. Um, but he uses the, the first person personal pronouns in this verse. But it's obvious from the context of the passage that Paul is talking about the experience of every believer. It's not just his own personal experience he's talking about. It's every believer. Anyway, it's in the second part of verse 20 that Paul says something completely different than what we might expect. In the context of Paul's argument about being justified by faith in Christ alone, one would expect Paul to say in the last part of verse 20, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who justified me. Right? We're talking about justification by faith. And so the life I now live in the, fle in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who justifies me. But that's not what Paul says. However, when you look at this, this is exactly what the point that Paul is making here. And as a matter of fact, his argument would have been much clearer and much more to the point if he would have just said it this way. But that's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul writes, in the context of justification by faith, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Now, you'll have to excuse me here, but it is these types of surprises that always intrigue me and capture my attention when I'm reading the Bible. In the midst of this pointed and repeated emphasis upon the fact that believers are justified only by faith in Jesus Christ, why does Paul shift the gears a little bit in the middle of his argument here and talk about Jesus, the Son of God, as loving us and giving himself for us? Now, there's been a lot of discussion among scholars as to why Paul would use this rather surprising phrase about Jesus giving himself for us in an argument that doesn't seem to really fit in such a logical way. The most credible explanation is that this expression, Christ gave himself for us, or Christ gave himself for our sins, was an expression that had already been formulated and used within the circles of early Christian believers. It was a traditional formula that all the early believers were already familiar with. It's kind of like when we talk about grace and somehow we end up saying it's amazing grace, right? Because we're so used to saying that. And as a matter of fact, we actually find this formula already in Paul's introduction to his letter to the Galatians. Flip back to chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 3 and 4, and look what Paul writes. Paul writes in his introduction... Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This traditional expression, Christ gave himself for us, or Christ gave himself for our sins, is often referred to by New Testament scholars as the surrender formula. Christ surrendered himself for us, or Christ surrendered himself for our sins. This evening, I want us to think about what Paul means when he says that Christ surrendered himself or that Christ gave himself for us. What does Paul mean by that phrase? And why does he substitute this phrase into his argument 
when it would have been more logical and more effective even to simply talk about Christ or the Son of God who justifies us. First of all, we have to determine then what Paul is really referring to when he talks about the Son of God giving himself for us. What does it mean that Christ gave himself for us? Well, a couple of scholars have turned to John 3.16 to try to gain an understanding of what Paul means here by this saying that Christ gave himself for us. In John 3.16, as you well know, John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave, God gave his son Jesus, that through believing in him, we might have eternal life. And so many scholars have argued that the surrender formula, God gave Jesus, or Jesus gave himself for us, refers to Christ's incarnation. They argue that the phrase, Christ surrendered himself, refers to the surrender of Christ's deity when he took on the form of flesh and became a man. Now, it's certainly true that Christ gave of himself when he surrendered his deity in the incarnation. But is that what Paul is referring to when he uses this surrender formula? The way to answer this question, of course, is to look at the context of Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 2. Within the context of Galatians chapter 2, there is no hint whatsoever that Paul is thinking about the incarnation of Christ. And so while it might sound good to try to relate the surrender formula back to John 3.16 and the idea of Christ's incarnation, there is simply no evidence to support this idea. Why? Because the context tells us that's not what he's talking about. That's a good way to find out what the Bible's saying, right? See what the context is of a verse. Where have we heard that before? So what does this surrender formula really refer to then? Well, within the context of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, there can really be no doubt that the phrase Christ gave himself for us refers to Christ's death. It's talking about his death. Every time Paul uses the expression Christ gave himself for us or Christ gave himself for our sins, he has the death of Christ in focus. In the beginning part of verse 20, Paul emphasized that the believer does not live for himself any longer because he has been crucified with Christ. And in verse 21, Paul proclaims that if a believer can be justified through the law instead of through faith, then Christ died for nothing. There can be no doubt that the phrase Christ gave himself for us refers to Christ's death for us. When we realize that the surrender formula refers to Christ's death, it begins to become more understandable why Paul would use the expression Christ gave himself for us in the midst of his discussion on justification by faith alone. I think that most of us within this room understand very well the connection between Christ's death and our justification. Don't we talk about the fact that Christ died for our sins? Don't we often connect our own salvation with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Of course we do. Paul himself says in, in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Jesus died for our sins in order to rescue us from the present evil age. The surrender of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, is what makes it possible for us to be justified before God. Amen? Amen. And so this is the reason why Paul uses the surprising phrase, the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us in verse 20. 
even when he's talking about the fact that justification is by faith alone. But this brings us back to the question of what it means that Christ gave himself for us. What does it mean that Christ gave himself for us or that Christ died for us? And what difference does that really make within our lives? Well, let's look at what Paul says in these verses in Galatians chapter 2. First of all, Paul makes it very clear that it is Christ's surrender that makes justification for believers possible. The direct link between Christ's surrender and justification is made by Paul in verse 21. This is where Paul emphasizes that if justification comes through the law instead of through Jesus Christ, then Christ died for nothing. Then he surrendered himself for nothing. And so it is the surrender of Christ. It is the fact that Christ loved us and gave himself for us that makes our justification possible. But we also find something else in this passage. We find that there is a condition for justification. The condition for this justification is that we must place our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when we talk about the fact that we are justified by the death of Christ, then some people get the idea that everyone is thus justified by Christ's death. I mean, if Christ died for all the sins of humanity, then doesn't it seem logical that everyone would be justified by his death? No, it's not logical at all. The condition of our justification is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul makes this very clear in verse 16 of our passage. Paul writes in verse 16 that justification by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, he writes, have put our faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Unless we place our faith completely and fully in Jesus Christ, Christ's death on the cross was just another death. It's meaningless. Christ died for nothing. Without faith, the death of Christ is meaningless and without any positive effect for us at all. The condition of our justification is faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first lesson we learn from the surrender formula in this passage is the fact that Christ's surrender of himself, his death, is what makes our justification possible. And the condition for this justification is our faith. But Paul also tells us something else here in this passage. Christ's love and self-surrender is perceived by Paul as resulting in life for the believer. It results in life for the believer. Listen to what Paul says. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thus, the fact that Christ gave himself for the believer not only makes it possible for the believer to be justified, but the surrender of Christ, the death of Christ, also makes it possible for the believer to live. To live. Just think of the juxtaposition that Paul creates here. We have the surrender death of Christ brings justification. We have the surrender and death of Christ which brings life to the believer. It is this juxtaposition of the death of Christ with the life of the believer that has caused many people to think of the death of Christ in terms of substitution. And so for many people, when they think of the death of Christ, they think of Christ's death in terms of a substitution for our own death. For them, the words, Christ gave himself for us, or Christ died for us, mean essentially that Christ died instead of us. 
Thus, when they read these words of Paul in Galatians 2.20, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, they think in substitutional terms. They think that this means that Christ loved us and gave himself or died instead of us. Do you see that the way this is conceived by many people? Since Christ's death results in our life, there are people that believe that Paul is saying here that Christ died instead of us. And so we who place our faith in Jesus Christ are enabled to dodge the judgmental bullet of death because Christ died in our place. He died instead of us so that we can live. We hear this type of teaching all the time. As a matter of fact, most of the popular songs that we sing in the church today seem to concentrate all of their attention upon the idea that Christ died instead of us. We live because He died. He died in our place. But this is not what Paul says in this passage at all. This is not what Paul is saying. Look at what Paul says in these verses. On the one hand, we have Paul proclaiming that Christ's surrender makes it possible for the believer to live. This is the point we've already observed. The surrender or death of Christ brings life for the believer. Paul asserts that Christ's surrender brings life. But when we look at this passage, at the same time that Christ's love and self-surrender result in life for the believer, Paul asserts that Christ's surrender, that is, his death, also includes the believer's death. Not only life, but the believer's death. Listen to what Paul says in these verses. In verse 19, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is evident that for Paul, Christ's death for us involves us in dying with him. He doesn't die instead of us. We die actually with him. Now, I'm sorry about all the songs we sing, but Paul is not thinking in substitutional terms here. Paul is not saying that Christ died instead of us. The fact of the matter is that we all have to die just like Christ died. You see, the life of the, religious, of the righteous believer is a life of participation in the life of Christ but also in the death of Christ. In order to live with the victory and power of the resurrected Christ, we have to die the death of the crucified Christ. This is the reason why Paul cries out to the Galatian believers, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is not saying that his experience is different than any other believer's experience. Rather, Paul is talking about the common experience of every believer. If you want to live for God, if you want to live with Christ, if you want to experience the victory of the resurrected Christ, you've got to die with Christ. So how about you? Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you experienced His power? Have you experienced the victory of having Christ live within you? Have you thought about what Jesus says about this? Jesus himself told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, which means anyone can, if anyone would come after me, what does he have to do? He has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. This is exactly what Paul is telling us in Galatians chapter 2. Paul tells us that the life of the true believer is a life that has been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified. I have died to my own selfish will. I have surrendered myself to death with Christ. I am not trying to take any shortcuts here. I'm not trying to save myself from anything. I have counted myself dead to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. May God forgive us for thinking that Christ died for our sins so we could continue to live in those same sins. The call of Christ in our lives, Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells us, is a call to come and die. We must die to our own selfish interests. We must die to our own selfish ambitions. We must die to the desire of always wanting to be in the spotlight. We have to die to want to be popular in everyone's sight. We have to die to have every plan that we make come out right the way we want it to. We have to die with Christ. We have to be crucified with Christ. I'm convinced the problems that we face in the church today are a result of our thinking that Christ died so that we don't have to die. And that's not what Christ says or what Paul says at all. And so we find ourselves trying to follow Christ without trying to take up the cross of Christ. And we try to live in the power and the victory of the resurrected Christ without following the path of the crucified Christ. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We must die with Christ. We must surrender ourselves completely, just as Christ surrendered himself completely for us. A.J. Gordon wrote, It costs much to obtain the power of the Spirit. It costs self-surrender and humiliation, and a yielding of our most precious things to God. It costs the perseverance of long waiting and the faith of strong trust. But when we, really, but when we are really in that power, we shall find this difference. That whereas before, it was hard for us to do the easiest things, now it is easy for us to do the hardest things. A.J. Gordon is talking about a life that has been crucified with Christ. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for me. Are you longing for Christ to live within you? Are you longing for the resurrection power of Christ to be real within your life? then you've got to come to Christ and die. You've got to come and die. I'm not sure what part of your life you're trying to save. But if you try to save it, you're in danger of losing it all. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. This passage just captivates me. 
it challenges me perhaps like no other passage that I find in the Bible. Because it teaches me that if I want to be Christ-like, I have to be Christ-like. If I want to live with Christ, I have to die with Christ. And I can't have one without the other. There are no shortcuts to the Christ-like life. He calls us to die. And when we don't die, we don't have Christ. He does not live within us. His life is not living within us unless we are crucified with Him. God, forgive me for wanting to have the power of Christ without the death of Christ. God, forgive me for thinking that Christ somehow died for my sins so I don't have to die to sin at all. That's not what the Word of God tells us. We have to die to sin as we are crucified with Christ. And then, and then, the power and the victory of the resurrected Christ lives in me. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Praise His name. Praise His name. I don't know if there's anyone here who needs to lose themselves for Christ's sake tonight. But that's the only way. That's the only way. I think I've gone through so much of my life trying to save myself somehow. I'm trying to, to hold back a reserve. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'd like you to stand with me. And I want you to know that the only path to victory, the only path to life, is the path of death, of being crucified with Christ. And if you've not yet been crucified with Christ, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. This evening is the time for us to share in the sufferings and to share in the resurrection of Christ our Lord. I'm going to pray. If the Lord's speaking to you, would you take that path? Would you step out? Jesus, I thank you for your word. And Jesus, I realize that you've done so much for us on the cross when you died that you identified yourself with us, that you took our sins upon you, and you died on our behalf. But Lord, that doesn't mean that I don't have to die. It means I need to identify myself with Christ and participate in Christ and die with him to sin and the things that would bind us. Lord, it's only after we've been crucified with Christ that we can realize that I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Oh, Lord, I long for that power of the resurrected Christ. I long for His strength, for His power, for His plan being lived out in my life. Because I can't do that. Christ didn't die so that somehow I live and try to do it on my own. 
But Jesus, you died on my behalf so I can participate in your death and in your resurrected life. Praise your name. Praise your name. And so, Lord, help us to die. Help us to die. Help us to sacrifice ourselves. Help us to give up that control. So that you can live within us. Oh Lord, may it be so. May it be so. We're going to sing a song. But if the Lord speaking to you, would you come?